This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today's behind-the-scenes episode is with Alina Cohen, who is a senior designer at HarperCollins, where she works on interior designs of books. She has worked as a book designer for over 20 years for some of the major publishers in New York. Working in the adult division, she designs in a variety of genres. Her most recent designs include Ron Howard's memoir, The Boys, and the nonfiction cold case investigation, The Betrayal of Anne Frank. In her leisure time, she enjoys hiking with her family in New England, cooking, and knitting for friends. I learned so much from speaking with Alina, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome, Alina. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm great, and I'm really excited that you're here to talk with me for my behind-the-scenes series. Today, we're going to talk about something that I know very little about, and I can't wait to learn everything from you. (laughs) (laughs) So you are an interior book designer at HarperCollins. We're going to talk all about what your job entails and what you do for the interior of the book, and hopefully we'll cover every aspect of that as we're chatting. So tell me first, what does your job entail? So my main role is to create beautiful and inviting books that are readable. So I start with a concept and turn that into what we call sample pages. And once those are approved by the team, which includes the author, the book goes into production. So my job then moves from creating to managing, where I oversee the book through its production phases Uh, making sure that everything that might need my design input gets addressed all the way through printer send-off. And then in the interim, I'm in communication with the production editors and managers who oversee different aspects of the book's production, like corrections and paper selection and the scheduling of the whole book. And one thing you told me before we got started recording 
was that at HarperCollins and most of the big publishing houses, that the cover design is one department and interior book design is another department. That's right. So we'll be talking all about the interior parts of the book today. Right. And that's, that's my main focus at Harper. Well, one thing that I get asked about decently often, and one of my listeners, Amanda, had sent me a special note asking about this a while back, but how do you decide what typeface to use? I think it's so interesting when I'll see at the end of a book information about the typeface and how it was created and even sometimes why it was used. So how does that part come about? Right. So for, say, period books, time and place are a really good place to start. And I will want to find a a font that maybe evokes London in the 60s or Italy in the 1800s. But even then, you may not want to you know, you may not want it to look that predictable. So if you're designing a book about the Beatles, you don't want it to look like every other Beatles book on the shelf. You want it to evoke that time, but also stand out from the crowd. So my, my personal preference is to vary the text spaces I use from book to book. But for any font that I pick, um, the size and letting might change. But my ultimate goal is readability and meeting the page count required for the book. And then so when we talk about fonts, there are text faces used for the body of the book and display fonts that are more ornamental and aren't really suited at smaller sizes because they might be too distracting or too fussy or just too dark. And most books are printed in black ink, but I'm also looking at the balance of white and black on the page. And some fonts are very thin and some set very dark. Scripts, for example, are particularly hard to choose because they're so idiosyncratic. I find if anywhere, the author will have much more of a say about that font choice because it's so personal to their own aesthetic. And when a script is called for, sometimes I might go through several versions before an author uh, might be happy with a particular script I've shown them. So, and you talk about those type pages at the back of the book, they aren't actually done by every publisher. There are certain imprints that like to use them. And generally speaking, the more literary books tend to include them. They are actually written by the designer. (laughs) And in my previous job at Penguin Random House, I would create the bios for the font I was using. I would research the font's history and write a short little biography. They're particularly helpful when you need to fill the page count out for the book instead of just having a lot of blank pages in the back, which aren't very attractive, but sometimes you need to do that. And it adds a nice little note to the back. And I always loved including them. I love reading them. And I figured maybe they were used when it was a specific, very unique font or something like that. So that's interesting that sometimes it's just used as a page filler, which we'll talk about in a little bit in terms of page count and how that all works and the empty pages. But first, I have a bunch more font questions if you don't Okay, sure. (laughs) I love fonts anyway. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Yes, I I would hope so. (laughs) Or your job would be very boring for you. Yes. But so the main font that you look at originally is for the body of the book. And so if it's a book that doesn't have text or doesn't have, you know, people speaking in italics or whatever it's going to be, or somebody going back in time and they're reflecting, sometimes that's in italics. But If you just have the regular old book written kind of in a traditional standard way, that's Mm -hmm. the first font that you look at. Then you also have chapter headings. That's right. And then you have the title page. Yeah. 
And where else are there fonts that you're looking at? Like the acknowledgments are usually in the same font as the regular part of the book, I'm assuming. Right. So typically all all the main heads in the book and everything is kind of based on a hierarchy from most important to not as important. So the title page would would get the main focus of my design treatment. So maybe chapter titles and the acknowledgments head and the something like a preface or an about the author, they might get the same kind of treatment in the display font that I choose. And then everything else is is sort of subordinate to that. So I try not to use more than, say, two to three fonts. And it really depends on the complexity of the book. The, the more complex sometimes you need to distinguish between all the different elements in the book, and you might need to use the different weights and how bold something is, or if it's set in just a, like a regular face. So there's there's so much variety that's really, it's kind of based on a hierarchy of of the structure of the book. So you really start with the title page instead of with the body of the book. It really depends <laughs> on on my mood at that point. Um, I'll read through the book and sometimes I'll be inspired. I know exactly what I want to do on the title page and then kind of the rest will follow. Or I might be just stuck that day and I'll, I'll start with the body of the book and then work backwards and uh, leave the display for last. Okay. Well, that is so interesting. And then also, it seems like there are more and more unique formatted books in terms of having texts included and emails and, you know, different types of things like that. And those must be really fun to format for you as well. Right. So I would say that that kind of structure of the book really starts with author, followed by the production editor, who will in turn, take all those different elements of that book and create a list for for me, the designer. And you know, novel novels are of course pretty straightforward: title, chapter title, body text. But when it comes to anything more complicated, like a business book with tables and charts and lots of different heads, or even a cookbook with all its unique elements, the production editor and the editor of the book will have a conversation about how to structure certain things. Um, And it might be different from what the author intended. Some things are subjective, like what kind of a list something becomes. It could be a bulleted list, a numbered list, an unnumbered list. And then some things that the author wants to get special attention might become sidebars. So once that manuscript comes to me with all the different elements kind of listed out and uh, pointed to in, in the book, either a page number or through a code that I get, I will design all the unique instances of those elements for approval. And we route it around to the whole team. So I will also have an opinion sometimes about a particular element being called out a certain way. And I might, I might think that it might be better served having it look a certain way. So once I start designing, I'm also evaluating what I'm reading and kind of like the hierarchy of the book and, you know, kind of agreeing or disagreeing with the way things are being called out. If there are a lot of different sections of the book that the author wants to make important, I have to style them so they don't compete with one another. 
so the the reader can understand and and make a distinction between all the different points that the author is making and and make that experience for them visually digestible. So if I make everything that the author and production editor highlight as important and they say it's supposed to be in in bold or in a box, uh well that's basically me interpreting that as someone yelling in all caps throughout the book. <laughs> and you're like, that can't be an entire book. People would have a horrible headache. <laughs> exactly. So I have to vary the way things look, especially when there are a lot of things being included. I guess I was thinking about recent books like Cover Story by Susan Rigetti, where she has mm-hmm. FBI transcripts and texts and emails and journal entries. None of them are probably weighted more than any other, but they all have to look different so that once you get used to reading the book, you realize, oh, I'm on the FBI transcript. Oh, I'm on the text. Oh, I'm on the Instagram post. And there's just a lot of different things that go into that book. So I would say there are two ways of handling things like that. And and more, of course, more recently, we are getting the emails and the texts and Instagram posts. Right. So one way is to say those are all treated the same way to one another, and they're different from the main body of the book. It, that that might happen, that might come from the editor, actually, where the editor says, please keep these things simple. They don't need to be that literal uh, looking. So the Instagram post doesn't have to look like an Instagram post, especially for, you know, in terms of the readability, if you're in a novel, that might just break the reading experience too much and it it might become too much of a distraction to all of a sudden make a big deal out of that section. Right. So they might say, just keep all these uh, extracts, we call them, italic, or just uh, keep them very simple. They don't look like what they literally look like in the world. Okay. That's really interesting. That must be much fun when you get a new book and just to begin all over again and think, okay, I really liked how I did this before, or I want to try something new with this book. Yep, that's, I usually try to vary it. <laughs> and you referenced a word a few minutes ago, letting, that I had not been familiar with till we started talking. And that is what word calls line spacing, but the publishing world calls letting. Will you talk a little bit about that, please? Sure. So what letting is, is the space between the lines that are set in the book. and what it refers to in, you know, original publishing, which which was a setting metal uh, type, was the actual lead or aluminum that was used. Um, and they were like bars, long strips that were placed in between the lines of text to either keep them close together or space them out. And that, that was the leading. That was the lead. I had never heard that term before, and I'm thrilled to pieces to learn it. And I'm fascinated by how you use that aspect of the typesetting. So do you use it, is it wider apart when you have a younger book? Is it related to a particular genre? Like how does the letting vary for you? When do you decide it should be larger or bigger, I guess maybe is the right word, and when it should be smaller? So some of this actually starts with the page count requirements that we need to meet for that particular book. And those are somewhat set by the price that the publisher wants for that book in that genre. And that's in groups of 16. Is that right? So page numbers are in groups of 16? 
Right. So the pages are in groups of 16, and that's simply a function of a big roll of paper that is the sheet. And when that's folded over and over again, usually the typical signature for the major publishers is 16. Sometimes small presses will print in eights. So you'll a signature is basically it, there's an interesting visual um, if anyone wants to look this up all online. So it's basically folded in half and then half again until you can get 16 pages on a sheet of paper. So when we get the page count, selecting the type and deciding what the lead uh, what the lead is is also partly to do with meeting the page count requirement for the book. So say I have a 160-page book, which is just for simplicity of the 16. I know that's short for a book. And you get the the text of the book, or I guess Mm -hmm. the document of the book, however it comes to you. And you need it to fit, say, I guess you have 160 pages. You need it to fit like 154 or something like that, or whatever it is once you've taken out the author's note and the title page and Whatever other pages come in, then you have a set number of pages you need the book to fill. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. So then you might think about the different fonts there too, the size of the font, the letting, all of that to kind of make it fit the right amount. Right. And and what happens is you can, to meet that page requirement, you have to take into account anything that is in the front matter that may not automatically be part of the text that you're given. So a title page or a dedication or a copyright that's automatically in there and any kind of back matter uh, that not that might not not be part of the original manuscript so about the author and there might be an acknowledgments that's uh, included late in, in the in the stage so y- you have to save space for anything in the front and the back and then in the middle you're working on making the text fit to the page count So you'll play with a space in the inside, that's the gutter, um, the space on the outside, the margins, the top and the bottom, and just make the whole page look good. Tell me what the gutter is. The gutter is the inside margin. It's the space between the folded pages. So when you open up the book, it's the inside of the book. I just learned another term. (laughs) Well, this also explains why sometimes a chapter will end and then there'll be a blank page if it's on the left side of the book and then the chapter will start on the right again. And I'm like, oh, I wonder why they left that page blank. But I guess sometimes when you're trying to work with page count and font and size and everything else you just described, there's many different ways that you could provide an extra piece of paper different places. And maybe if there aren't that many chapters, putting one in between a variety of chapters would work well. Exactly. So like in your example, if you decide that the chapter will start left, uh, I'm sorry, it will start on a right, you also have to be consistent in the main body of the text. You, you don't necessarily, if you're trying to make something longer, you're, you might decide I'm going to start my chapters all on the right, or they can both be left and right. And that's a design decision, but sometimes it also comes from the publisher where the publisher might say, I really don't want it. It's also more traditional to start chapters on the right. Uh, I only want my chapters starting right. So yeah, it's a combination of things. Well, that actually leads me right into my next question, which is, do you have a lot of latitude, which it sounds like you do, 
Or does the author and the editor or other people at the publisher come in with lots of ideas? Like, how does that usually work for you? Right. So with with covers, it's a lot different. But with interiors, I would say generally, I have a lot of latitude um, when it comes to coming up with the initial concept. Um, My work is pretty independent initially. For books that have a lot more elements in them, like cookbooks, which might need a particular brand style or a book by a previously published author, and they have their own uh, kind of look that they always like. So they might have specific preferences, and we try to meet that at the concept stage. And then once my sample pages route, um, that's typically when someone on the team might express a specific opinion about the overall look, or we'll ask for a different font to be used in the display. That's just so interesting to me, all of this, because I guess I had just never really thought about the interior part of the book and all of the work that goes into it. And I should have, because, you know, I read so much, but as you're talking about these things, I'm thinking, oh gosh, now I'm going to really notice a lot more of it as I'm reading. I'm still surprised how much goes on (laughs) inside. Yeah. Well, what about the end papers? Do you do those? Yes, we do end papers as well for, let's say, historical novels or uh, a memoir. An author might submit a map that we'll commission a map maker for. So we'll recreate that or sometimes we'll pick our own art. And everything, of course, is for approval. So I might generate an idea and it will be run by the editor and the author. Do the end papers require more conversation than the rest of the book, or do you feel like you have a wide range of latitude for that too? I think it really depends. Maps are more complicated, and there's a lot more conversation between the editor um, and author and myself because there are just so many different things going on from style to what exactly is the content of the map. And then if it's not a map or something that's specific, Uh, there's a little bit more latitude. Like sometimes I'll just create something that's simply beautiful looking and they say, yes. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, we love it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and I guess I should really back up on that end paper question as I'm thinking about it, because not every book has end papers. I mean, they all have end papers, but a lot of them are just white pages, but a lot of them don't have decorated end papers. So how does that decision come about? That is more of a budget issue. And right now there are paper issues. There are, you know, just uh, problems with paper and, and, and getting it. So it's more of a question of a budget. Do we, are we printing enough quantities of the book to justify including an end paper and um, having that be part of the book? Uh, and some, some books just really don't need an end paper. It it's uh, very specific. I mean, uh, I might include one on a memoir or something like I said, more historical. But they don't all deserve it in a way. Sometimes we'll just pick a color for the end paper. I think that's right. And sometimes it seems like historical fiction, which you mentioned earlier with maps. But there are other things as well. Like if it's truly based on an event that happened, where there might be newspaper articles or things like that. That's where I often see them as well. Exactly. Yeah, they're very specific to the that book. Absolutely. Well, how has the paper shortage impacted your job? Mostly with the end papers, <laughs> but not really because our, our page count requirements haven't changed. We're still publishing what the authors are submitting. I'm not part of the very, very early conversations in terms of 
what the editor or publisher might expect from the author submitting the manuscript. So I'm not sure if those conversations have changed, but I doubt it because I've designed all sorts of books this year. So probably very little effect. (laughs) Well, and if a pub date has to be pushed out, that's not really impacting you because you've already done your work. It would have been ready for the original date. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Most of my work is done. Well, what about working with the cover designer? Yeah. So especially on fiction titles, there's more of a decision to kind of marry the two, or at least not have them look so different from one another. The covers and the interiors are really on different schedules, where the a list comes out for the season, the cover designers might be behind the interior designers, and we might have already done the work for one or two books, and they're still working on the covers for them. So we don't always get the benefit of seeing what has been done and approved by the editor. You know, we just have to make sure that it's not crazy different. (laughs) That they don't conflict in a way, like you wouldn't open the book and think, wait a minute, this looks so different from the cover. That's interesting, because I would have thought that might be something that was done more in tandem. So that's fascinating that it's not. When when it can be done in da- in tandem, it is, and there there are some cases where it's really a package, and the designer and the cover um, designer talk. I will sometimes ask the cover designer, "Hey, do you have something ready that I can take a look at just just to see the direction or the tone of the of the cover? Even if the font might not be fon- finalized, I'll get a sense right away of." if I'm going to be on track or not with that particular interior. Well, that's what I was kind of wondering, just to see the direction they're going or what they're thinking, whether that just would kind of get you started as well. Right. What about the genre? Does that make a difference for you? You get a historical fiction book. We've talked a little bit about the end papers and the font potentially, but do you treat each genre differently or do you just treat each book differently as a brand new project? I treat each book differently. New project, new thinking. (laughs) So you don't worry about, okay, this is a thriller and I need to have some kind of thriller looking font. You just decide, okay, here's this new book and I'm going to start all over again and go from there. I mean, a little bit if it's uh, something like suspense or thriller. Uh, But even then, I don't want it to look like every other thriller on the market. So I'll I'll read a book to get a sense of the tone of the book, the writing, uh, the characters. And I will try to figure out the font for that particular book. I'm not even sure. It's it's more intuitive than technical, really. After doing this for so many years, I think you kind of just get a sense of what will work, especially for a book like a mystery or a suspense thriller, what will work for that audience, what they'll recognize and see, yes, I understand the genre, I want to read it. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's not going to shock them when they open it and think, well, this is a thriller, but this font looks nothing like what I expected kind of thing. Exactly. It's not, it's not a humor book. (laughs) Exactly. Well, you mentioned that you've been doing this for a while. How did you get started and what has your path looked like? My path, I guess, is funny because I did a yearbook (laughs) in high school and I worked on a a literary magazine in college. 
but I graduated with an English degree. And uh, when I got to New York, I applied for editorial positions. And then on a whim, I decided to apply to the art department at Simon Schuster. And I was very lucky to be mentored there by my, uh, my first boss, Eve Metz, who was very well known in the industry. And I had only worked for her for two years. Uh, when she decided to retire, <laughs> but she must she must have seen some talent because she promoted me to junior designer before she left. And then after that, I just I actually came to Harper Collins for a few years, and then um, I worked a long time at Penguin Random House before coming back to Harper again. Well, and it has to be interesting being at the different publishing houses because even though they're all large publishing houses. They do things drastically different. And I'm sure that the interior design department is just the same in terms of being very different from publishing house to publishing house. It is. It's the same and it's different. So, what you know, while the people are different, some of the processes are also a little bit different in just in terms of the way we get codes. And I don't want to get into the technical aspects of it too much, but everyone goes through the production of the book slightly differently in terms of the kinds of codes that they use or just the the review process is slightly different. Sure, because it developed at each house on its own. So everybody has a process that they follow that works for them. Exactly. Well, how many books would you say you work on a year? Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe break it down. How many do you work on a month? Here, I design approximately one book a week. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So that if you translated that out, I guess, you know, 52 weeks, but I'm sure you have some weeks off. But okay. So a lot of books a year. Yes. <laughs> wow. And do you focus on any particular genre or do they just assign it based on who's got availability and what's happening? It's both interest. I will take a look at the list that's come out for the season and let my supervisor know if I'm interested in a particular title. I tend to like working on books that take place in World War II, um, history books, science books, fiction, literary titles. So I might ask for specific book projects. Um, and then other times, I will just be assigned <laughs> whatever comes through the door at that, at that point. The ones that they're like, okay, we need somebody to work on this. Who's up next? That's right. Well, what does a typical workday look like for you? Uh, it will really vary really isn't a typical workday because each book is on its own production schedule. So depending on where I am in the project, I might be designing all day or uh, sending samples around to an editor for them to review. And then, of course, I get the feedback. I will look at different passes of the book and I'll make comments and corrections when they're needed for the person who's making the corrections. Um, I might create a contract for a map maker or illustrator or review their work before I pass it along for uh, approval. So at Harper, I also design the spine dies. So I'll set the type and suggest the colors for the case. Or we might have a department meeting just to catch up on anything we need to discuss uh, overall as a group. And then I might evaluate proofs of artwork before they're printed. So my day has a lot of variety to it. Now, you just mentioned something else I'm not familiar with. The spine dives, is that what you called it? Spine dives, yes. Okay, so tell me about that. So when you have a hardcover book and you take the dust jacket off, you will see on the spine of the book, that's the middle section, 
the type is printed in foil. Always. You know, that's interesting. I rarely take my covers off. I have every once in a while done that and seen that, but I don't usually pay attention because I hate to take the covers off. So every time in a hardcover, it's always printed in foil? Yes. Some, sometimes it's metallic or shiny looking. Sometimes it's got a matte effect to it. It just depends on uh, what the designer picks. And do you pick a font for that? Or does that, is that a font that's already used in the book? How does that work? Exactly. We, we try to match it to what we're doing in the interior. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, usually from the title page. You also referenced something else that I was curious about, and I hadn't thought about it till you mentioned it. So you design all of this, and then the copy editors are catching the typos, and all of that's happening, and somebody has to make those changes. So you go through and you say, okay, I've, I've chosen this font for the chapter heading, and I've chosen the, the letting, and I've chosen all these different things, but it comes back to you and you're like, wait a minute, this isn't right on the title page, or that I don't like the spacing of the way the, the words are for the chapter headings. Who makes those changes? So we have a composition team and they will make the corrections and based on the input from the editor, the author and the production editor. So everyone's like triple checking each other. <laughs> and everybody sends their stuff to this person. Okay. To the next person. So before they get it, you know, there there's kind of like a, a line of people checking. I'm typically the end of the line. And so I will go through and based on their corrections, because sometimes they'll point something out that's uh, design related, that's not just a typo or something that the author wants to add in or remove. I will weigh in on that and I'll ask the composition team to make corrections as well for, my, for myself. Oh, that's so fascinating. I hadn't even thought about that. Who would actually be making the changes? Right. That also makes me think about another thing. You know, sometimes when you have chapter headings, say chapter one, chapter two, whatever, but there'll either be a quote or there'll be a design or a drawing. How does that come about? Usually that is already part of the manuscript where the author has said, I want epigraphs in the beginning of my chapter. So that's already part of their original manuscript. And we just designed that element. Other times I've actually had and this has more to do with page count again. Traditionally, you cannot have right blank pages. So sometimes the solution will be, uh, depending on the book, if it's appropriate, is to put a great big quote on the right-hand page. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I will create the quote. I, I, I will pull it from the book and to give an example of what that might look like. and. If the author and editor like it, they say, yeah, great, go for it. We'll, we'll figure out what that actual text will be. Okay, that's so interesting as well. I'm going to be paying so much closer attention to the actual <laughs> book you know, versus the text in the book when I am reading from now on, because this is also fascinating. What other things do you do to fill in? So say you have five extra pages that need stuff on them. What do you do? So we might extend the front matter. So if there's a half title page in the beginning of the book, we might add a second half title page. The half title page refers to the very first page in the book, which is often not the title page. So if there's a particularly long front matter section where there's a preface and acknowledgments and a prologue, we might put in a second half title page before the actual start 
of the book. (laughs) Okay, so that's so interesting because I worked at a bookstore for a number of years pre-COVID. And I would have the job often of getting the books ready for author signings. And so you have to get it to the full title page. And I'd often wonder, why does this book have an additional, you're calling it half title page. I didn't know what it was called. Why does it have this second title page? And, you know, then I was having to figure out originally which one. Over time, it's very easy to figure out the bigger one and, and put the flap in at that section. But I always wondered why some books had that and some didn't. Right. And sometimes we have to go the reverse where we have to save on pages. So if a book had previously been started all new write pages, we might say, you know what, we have to go back and have the chapters start left and right. Or we really need to squeeze things and the dedication is no longer setting on its own page. We have to put it on top of the copyright. (laughs) There are all sorts of creative ways to push and pull things. So yeah, (laughs) we have our tricks. (laughs) Oh, I just love it. This is all just completely fascinating to me. Well, what's the favorite part of your job and your least favorite part of your job? So my least favorite part is archiving. (laughs) And fortunately, I don't have to do it too often, but it's, uh, it's the least creative, most mechanical aspect. And not surprisingly, my favorite job is working on the design and just delving into a new book and reading and skimming it and familiarizing myself with with the project and starting the font selection and figuring out the concept. So sometimes an idea will percolate as I'm reading the book or I'll draw inspiration from the images I'm considering using in the interior. What is archiving? I'm sorry to go back to your least favorite part, but I'm not sure I know what that is. I mean, I know generally what archiving is, but what does it mean in your business? Yeah, sure. And every publisher, I'm sure, does it in their own way. But archiving simply means that the book is not lost. The It's archived for our records. So any kind of uh, written material that we've created for it, I'm not talking about the emails, but the the major book content like the cover or the, the final uh, PDF before it's sent to the printer or a spine die will get stored, so archived for posterity. I'm not quite sure how long the books are kept, but probably a long time. And it's useful because uh, we pull them out again when we're reprinting for a paperback, when changes might be necessary, and we'll use the old files to start with. So we're not obviously recreating it from scratch. This raises another question for me. Do you have like a check sheet or a single sheet that talks about the different fonts you used in the book and other choices you made, like the letting and all those different things? Is there sort of a one-page document that you could pull out for any particular book and say, here are the choices I made? We used to have that. That was called, uh, let's see, type, specs, composition, order. And before Harper, even at Penguin Random House, we would use it. It's not really asked for anymore by our printer. But it used to be where everything that we have selected was written out by word. So everything I have chosen is spelled out in in great detail. But we don't really do that anymore because things are much more digital and it's basically passed on digitally from person to person. So it's all in the file. So you would just be able to tell that from pulling the document up? Exactly. That makes sense. I hadn't thought about it that way. Well, it sounds like you read a lot of books. 
So what have you read that you really enjoyed? I just finished reading Clara and the Sun by Ishiguro. And I, I just love his stories. I, I think he writes in deceptively simple language. But then the interior world that he creates for his protagonist is just so rich and meaningful. I can actually see this this book becoming a movie, too. It's so haunting. <laughs> I haven't read it, but I've heard great things. Yeah, I, I love his work. Um, and then I just acquired the cookbook. Um, I, I don't know how recently it came out. Uh, Baking in the 20th Century Cafe. And once my oven comes back to life, um, I want to make the sachet tort. That sounds yummy. I love looking through cookbooks and you were talking about designing them. And I bet that's really fun because there are so many different elements that go into them. Yeah, it is fun. I don't get to do it as often as I like, but um, I do love working on them just because there's much more color, there's much more photography, and you just get to be a little bit more playful with all of that. Right. And you were talking about the text boxes and the sidebars and some of those things that you're not really doing in a novel. Right, exactly. There's much, much more to work through. It's, it's a puzzle you have to figure out. Exactly. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating, Alina, and I cannot thank you enough for joining me today on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I now am going to read much closer. Well, actually, I already read closely. I will be looking much more closely at my books. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me on the show. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. I hope you'll tune in next time. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.